This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Welcome to Radio Orbit, 
My name is Mike Hagan. I'm your host, as always. All right, so uh, hello, and good to be with you tonight. Got an interesting and cool and fun show for you, hopefully. And what I'm going to do is, uh, well, start off the show like we normally do, kind of, and uh, talk about a few stories. We'll do space weather in a little bit here. But for the uh, interview section of the show that we usually do from uh, from midnight until 2, I'm going to air a bunch of uh, different interviews that I did with Joanna Harcourt-Smith at the Bioneers, um Conference at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, uh, which was held last weekend. And we did 15 interviews in three days, and uh, it was sort of a whirlwind with lots of interesting people talking about uh, many relevant topics, uh, lots of which I hope you guys will all uh, at least uh, find some of them uh, worthwhile. I won't be able to to, uh, to put all of them on the air tonight, but I'll pick, I'm trying to get a trying to pick maybe six or seven of the best ones uh, to share with you all tonight. And then uh, I'll give you the websites and all that stuff, so if you want, uh, you guys can go and uh, download them yourself, the stuff that you don't hear on the program tonight, because all that stuff has been archived up on the web and was podcast basically live, uh, only with a very short delay. And uh, it's all up there, and it was really cool. It was one of the neatest things I've done. Uh, both in radio, but also using these new technologies that I'm so excited about. So, anyway, all all that stuff uh, uh, was really cool, and I'll tell you more about it as we get uh, get going into the program here. Okay. All right. Thanks uh, to Debbie. Another wonderful uh, episode of Free Range Radio Theater on at 10 p.m. every Monday, one hour before Radio Orbit. Great stuff. Doing Dracula tonight. And, of course, next week, the uh, coup de grace with War of the Worlds, one of my favorite uh, pieces of radio theater. And uh, no video has ever done it justice. Uh, the radio version, I think, uh, is by far the most outstanding uh, of all of the uh, presentations of War of the Worlds that have been made over the years. So, anyway, thanks uh, to Debbie for a great show, as always. Okay, thanks for the emails. Uh, hello to everybody listening over the web. Uh, if you haven't noticed, the website improvements are manifold. Please go to www.mikehagan.com, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com, and poke around a little bit and tell me what you think. Uh, next week, um, I plan to have that thing up and running sort of for good, and uh, I'm going to connect uh, the, Radio Orbit webs- uh, the Radio Orbit website with the Mike Hagan website, which my new wonderful friend and uh, uh, techno guru uh, Larry uh, has put together for me just a fantastic guy and a wonderful story uh, in and of itself that I'll have to tell one of these days on the air but anyway so check out MikeHagan.com and let me know what you think you can send me an email at OrbitRadio O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at AOL.com that's OrbitRadio at AOL.com and, of course, the regular website where all of the shows are currently archived. If you missed a show and you want to listen to something from the archives, or if you want to share it with a friend or something like that, you can go to RadioOrbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. And then just go to the uh, to the archives page there. And um, you can hear the old stuff, okay? And that will be uh, available, hopefully, uh, ad infinitum, 
until I run out of money, which may not be that long, actually. So, okay. Uh, so tonight, yeah, we're going to do the Bioneers stuff. And it was really fun. I had a great time at the conference, and I met a lot of cool people. And, uh, you know, there was some sort of new age um, lovey-dovey stuff going on, and it was good. Uh, but there was also some sort of hardcore apocalyptic stuff going on and a lot of stuff in between. But um, things from organic farming and how to grow shiitake mushrooms from coffee grounds uh, to uh, the peak oil uh, problem that seems to be uh, approaching us very quickly. Uh, and lots of other stuff. So anyway, that stuff's all coming up. At the uh, top of the hour, plus or minus, we'll start we'll start playing some of those things. All right. Okay. So uh, upcoming guests next week, we're going to do the Halloween special. As usual, we'll have Kent Stedman on the air doing the Sawain special uh, for the All Hallows Eve on the 31st of October. Actually, next Monday will be Halloween. Uh, will actually be Halloween night. And so we'll have Kent on the air, and we're just going to have a fun show. We're going to play some live music. I'll have some musicians with me here in the studio, and I'm going to bring some up, uh, some of my instruments up, and we'll all be playing some fun Halloween music, and Kent will be on the air, and we'll open the phone lines if anybody wants to call and chat with us. But it should be a fun week, uh, uh, a fun show a week from now with Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. And if you're a regular listener of the show, you know who Kent is. And if you don't, uh, we'll listen in uh, listen in next week because uh, he's awesome. He's a wonderful guy and a great friend and a a, a wonderful teacher. So uh, he always has something to uh, uh, to uh, reveal to us on the program. All right. After that, let's see what do we have coming up next week. Like I said, Bardo uh, on Halloween. That's his nickname to me. Anyway, live music, fun times. Walter Cruttenden the following week. That's November seventh. Uh, Walter has written a book called uh, Lost Star of Myth and Time, and in a nutshell, uh, basically says that there's evidence uh, both in current scientific literature and historical literature, both mythological and scientific, uh, that argues that the sun, our sun, soul, uh, is part of, uh, is uh, one half of a binary star system, and that we actually have another star a companion star, as it were, uh, to the sun uh, that is uh, instrumental in uh, the course of history. And it ties it into the uh, the Vedic Hindu writings of the Yuga cycles and uh, the Mayan calendar, lots of different things. But anyway, really interesting stuff from Walter Cruttenden. Again, uh, the book he's written is called Lost Star of Myth and Time, and we'll be talking with Walter uh, in two weeks. After that, Lucy Pringle, my favorite Lucy Pringle, uh, wonderful crop formation researcher uh, from uh, the hills of the United Kingdom. And... She'll be with us in three weeks to talk about what has happened uh, over the last summer in England and some of the amazing crop formations that she's been able to uh, to witness and uh, to research over the uh, over the year. Now, Lucy was on the program last uh, September, uh, a little over a year ago, and we talked about 
uh, some of the things that had happened uh, in the summer before that, and we'll do the same thing. And there are many, many uh, enigmatic and interesting things to talk about again with Lucy because the, the, the crop formations just continue to amaze. And uh, we won't go too deeply into it here, but yeah, for those of you, I know there's always the standard uh, idea that uh, they're all hoaxed and that they're all they're all done by uh, by human beings uh, in in with with obvious mannerisms using using boards and um, simple devices that anybody can do. And well, okay, if, first of all, if that were true, and I don't believe that it is, and I think there's evidence to show that that's not true in all cases. Uh, but they're fantastic artists, uh, whoever they are. Uh, and some of the actual uh, human man-made structures are actually amazing as well. They're, they're, they're capable of doing some really interesting things now, especially with GPS. But uh, there are certain uh, things that show up uh, in the quote-unquote authentic uh, formations. And those are things that Lucy can talk to us about, but I think that they're uh, very difficult uh, for... Uh, for anybody without some other sort of technology that we're not uh, availed to uh, being involved in it. So at any rate, Lucy Pringle, Crop Formations, that's coming up on November 14th. And then the following week, uh, on the 21st, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Doro Meinke. And Doro is a, uh, an initiated shaman, and she lives in Hawaii, and we're going to be talking with her about male initiation. And if you don't know what male initiation is, well, yeah, it's an important topic and one that has been lost to our culture uh, in many ways. And we're going to be talking about it with a woman who knows a whole lot about it. So uh, so that's coming up in uh, the next few weeks. Lots of stuff going on. And I'll continue to try to bring more of this stuff to you, okay? This is... Uh, Robbie Robertson, formerly from the band, but uh, playing uh, something from the album of the same name. And this is Somewhere Down the Crazy River. This is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a little while.
take a picture of this. The fields are empty, abandoned 59 Chevy. Laying in the backseat, listening to little Willie John. Yeah, that's when time stood still. You know, I think I'm going to go down to Madam X and let her read my mind. She said that voodoo stuff don't do Robbie Robertson, somewhere down the crazy river. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. All right, uh, so let's see. Let's move right along here, okay? Let's do space weather. And hey, I want to mention something really fast too. I'm going to play uh, some music by a guy. His name is Stendek, and he is going to be playing down at the Blue Fugue on Thursday, the 27th, just a couple of nights from uh, from tonight. And he's an amazing. Uh, musician, sort of a one-man recording studio. And anyway, I've got a, uh, a couple of tickets that I'm going to give away to that show uh, Thursday night at the Blue Fugue. But anyway, I'll give those away. And just uh, after Space Weather, I'm going to play one of his songs. But uh, at the ne- at the next break, a couple of tickets for Stendek. Uh, just a little while, okay? All right, Space Weather. Uh, speaking of Mars, I'm going to talk about Mars in a minute. But thanks to Sir Charles, a wonderful show last week and amazing information that he was sharing with us about the planet Mars. And um, if you'd like to uh, go back and uh, look at any of the 
the stuff that he presented, you can check him out at www.xenotechresearch.com. That's Xenotech with an X. X-E-N-O-T-E-C-H research.com, xenotechresearch.com. All right, speaking of Mars, here it comes. Uh, Mars is going about uh, is about to make the closest approach to the planet Earth that it will have uh, in the next oh, 10 or 12, 13 years, something like that. And it will be next Sunday, actually, on the 30th of October, just the day before we do the program, uh, is when Mars will become uh, as close as it will be for a long time. But at any rate, it's very close right now. And it will be close for the next week, and it will be close for the weeks after that, because these things don't just happen really quickly. It's sort of these periods that they move in. But at any rate, Mars is very close uh, to the Earth, relatively speaking, and it's a beautiful sight. You can see it rising up uh, underneath the moon uh, as the moon rises in the evening now. Uh, If we had clear skies, and I don't know if we do tonight, you can see that. Hopefully we'll have clear skies uh, next next week uh, for... Halloween, and you'll be able to see Mars shining bright, and uh, even with that telltale reddish-orange glow that you can certainly see uh, when you look at it, and sometimes not maybe directly, sometimes out of the corner of your eye, you can see it a little bit better. But anyway, Mars is really clear right now, and if you have a small telescope or something like that, uh, you'll get a great view. So anyway, that's something to look forward to uh, for the next, uh, next couple of weeks, all right? Uh, there's also, uh, since we're talking about the Mars uh, planet, there's a big dust storm happening again on Mars. There have been a couple of these over the last few years. Anyway, this one in particular is uh, really wreaking havoc over the surface of the planet. There are lots of images that are up on the web now that are sort of before and after pictures of uh, of this dust storm that's already in progress and uh, pretty amazing to look at the comparisons between the two. You can go actually to spaceweather.com if you're interested in looking at that. They've got some wonderful imagery up there and lots of other information in general. Uh, The sun has been relatively quiet. In fact, extremely quiet. And uh, interestingly uh, enough, uh, very low levels uh, following the amazing uh, intensity that we saw just a couple of weeks ago. And right now the entire disk of the sun has dropped uh, to very low levels. Uh, But uh, as I say, this uh, quiet period that we're experiencing now follows just uh, an astonishing, remarkable outburst of of big, giant X-class flares and coronal mass ejections uh, just uh, uh, last month. And uh, just... Amazing, and it really shows how unpredictable uh, the sun really is, and uh, how these cycles that we think we understand uh, could be much deeper and uh, inside of many other cycles that we're not really aware of. But anyway, the sun uh, always full of surprises, and uh, always interesting to watch and see what uh, uh, what she's doing up there. All right, one other thing with space weather I wanted to mention. There was a uh, a mission uh, to Venus uh, from the European Space Agency that was supposed to be launched on Wednesday, and it has been delayed. And I'll read the story here for you real quick, uh, but that was one that I was sort of interested in, so I'll just uh, share this with you here. Uh, the Venus Express uh, was designed to monitor the planet's unusual atmosphere. Uh, it was to have been launched by a Russian Soyuz uh, frigate rocket, 
operated by the company Starsam, uh, which was uh, in uh, Kazakhstan. And this was a European Space Agency mission uh, that was being undertaken by uh, by these outside parties. But the ESC said, ESA said in a press press release that contamination was detected inside uh, the fairing, the bullet-shaped hood that covers the payload at the top of the rocket uh, at the final checks at Balkanor. Uh, did not give details. A new launch date will be announced shortly. Uh, the 1.27-ton unmanned orbiter is equipped with seven instruments intended to map the Venusian surface and weather systems looking at temperature variation, cloud formations, wind speeds, gas composition, etc. Its main goal is to help understand why Venus fell prey to runaway global warming. <laughs> well, yeah, I think Venus is something like 700 degrees uh, <laughs> uh, on a regular day or something like that. So... Anyway, okay, that's space weather for you. Uh, you can get uh, more of this stuff always at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. That's Kent Stedman's site. You can also get information always at uh, spaceweather.com. And most of this stuff is linked up uh, at radioorbit.com. All right, so uh, let's see. Here's a little bit, a uh, little bit of music from Stendek. Like I, me- uh, like I mentioned, this guy's an amazing musician and somebody who's really cool. I saw him uh, just a couple months ago. He's been, he's played at the Fugue a couple times uh, over the last two, three months. But uh, he goes only by the name Stendek. But he's a one-man band and does an amazing thing with all of his uh, uh, equipment uh, at the same time. Anyway, this is a song called Pink Moon. And anybody who gives me a call at Eight seven four five six seven six one eight hundred eight nine five five six seven six. Once we get this thing planned, uh, I'll give you a couple of tickets uh, for the show on Thursday at the Blue Fugue. All right, this is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, and we'll be back in just a minute. Oh, 
Stendek, congratulations to Jeff. He'll be going to see Stendek. Picked up a couple of tickets to go see the performance at the Blue Fugue on Thursday night. All right, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. I have a couple stories I want to read to you here before we uh, go to the Bioneers interviews that we'll be playing uh, for the rest of the show. I was actually looking at the Bioneer stuff that I want to play, and there's a whole bunch of it, so I may start a little bit early. I want to get to as many of them as I can because there were quite a few that were really interesting. So, Anyway, other other interesting stuff as well, and this brings me to another point that I didn't mention earlier, but I will. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to expand the show to do more more stuff. It is frustrating. There's a whole lot of different stuff that I want to cover, but uh don't have enough time uh, to do it. I also meant to say thanks uh, to my new friend Lance up there in Powell River, uh, Powell River. British Columbia. Nice up there this time of year. I hope harvest is going well. And uh, everybody else, check this out. All right. This is from uh, Free Market News Network and uh, pulled from uh, Physorg, which is a, a respectable physics peer-reviewed uh, organization. Silver Kills Viruses study finds. Now, this is in a very nondescript uh, little article in, in this, in this uh, free market news network that nobody knows about. And, uh, but listen to what this article says. In a groundbreaking study, the Journal of Nanotechnology has published a study that found silver nanoparticles kills HIV-1 and is likely to kill virtually any other virus. The study, which was conducted by the University of Texas and Mexico University, is the first medical study to ever explore the benefits of silver nanoparticles, according to Physorg. During the study, researchers used three different methods of limiting the size of the silver nanoparticles by using capping agents. The capping agents were foamy carbon, poly-PVP, and bovine serum albumin, BSA. Particles range in size from 1 to 10 nanometers, uh, nanometers depending on the, uh, the method of capping. Uh, here's the important part. After incubating the 
after incubating the HIV-1 virus at 37 degrees Celsius, the silver particles killed 100% of the virus within three hours for all three methods. The scientists believe that the silver particles bonded through glycoprotein knobs on the virus with spacing of about 22 nanometers in length. While further research is needed, researchers are optimistic that nanological silver may be the silver bullet, quote-unquote, to kill virusers. Uh, the researchers in the study said that they had already uh, begun experiments using silver nanoparticles uh, to kill what is known as the superbug, uh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Already used as a topical antibiotic in the medical industry, silver may now come under consideration as an alternative to drugs when it comes to fighting previously untreatable viruses such as Tamiflu-resistant avian flu. Yeah. I'm going to read one paragraph or one, one sentence one more time. After incubating the HIV-1 virus at 37 degrees Celsius, the silver particles killed 100% of the virus within three hours for all three methods. Now, uh, hopefully there are people out there in, in the listening area that are familiar with uh, what's called colloidal silver. And colloidal silver is nothing less than what these uh, guys are talking about in this, um, uh, in this article here. And uh, the size of the particle is, uh, is of note, uh, but a good colloidal silver, uh, well, correctly manuf manufactured colloidal silver, uh, creates uh, silver in, in, in colloid uh, solution uh, within the same range that these guys are talking about in this particular article. Uh, silver has long been known uh, to be uh, the great enemy of bacteria. And uh, there, there are both references in the historical medical literature as well as uh, mythological, folklorish uh, ideas about silver. We have uh, the legend of the silver bullet, and they even use it in this article. They use that metaphor. It was a cure-all. The silver bullet was something that could cure things. Um, one of the... One of the uh, uh, one of the reasons given for the health, the better health of the upper class in uh, uh, earlier uh, days was that they used silver utensils as opposed to tin, for example. And uh, the silver uh, by osmosis that was absorbed into their mouths um, was actually a benefit to their immune system. And uh, anyway, there are many, many uh, references to silver uh, in the historical literature, the silver lining of a cloud. This is another metaphor for this. But at any rate, silver uh, is a wonderful antibiotic and not just topical. Uh, the, the reason I, and I'm speaking of this through experience, uh, I've, I've, and, and I don't suggest anybody do it without researching it themselves, uh, but for me, I had, had an amazing uh, experience and luck with colloidal silver and I actually am able to manufacture it myself and I have this little uh, little generator and these little pure silver rods that uh, I put in distilled water and I can make it myself but uh, you can uh, you can you can buy um, colloidal silver at uh, certain health food stores and, and things like that you have to be sort of 
careful what you buy and make sure you know what you're doing. But uh, And I suggest that I'm not going to tell you what that is, that you go find out for yourself. But at any rate, in my own experience, I had, I've had great luck with colloidal silver, and it started with my dog. Uh, a few years ago, I had a Labrador retriever. He lived until he was 16 years old. And he was a wonderful uh, dog and a great friend and all that. Uh, but colloidal silver basically kept him alive, I think, for the last five years of his life. Um, that and the fact that I never took him to a veteran uh, veterinarian after he was about 10 years old. Because I realized he was probably going to end up dead if I let him do all the stuff they wanted to do to him. So, anyway, we just quit seeing the vet, and uh, and I gave him colloidal silver that controlled his cancer, basically, uh, until he was 16 and died. Uh, I mean, he was old, you know. Uh, but anyway, he had a lot of maladies uh, when he was a little bit younger, but uh, anything that was infection-related, uh, colloidal silver really cl- really cleared up. And I did it on I did it on the advice of a friend, and then I began to research it uh, myself for human use, and found out that there was a, a great uh, historical precedent and great success uh, that was associated with this particular product. And so, anyway, I started using it and I learned a lot about it. And um, I attribute much of my good health uh, to the fact that I have a healthy level of silver in my system. And uh, it turns out that uh, all the people that used to laugh about that and make jokes about how silly it was as they went and got their flu shots uh, and things like that. Well, I offer this article from Fizzorg and from the Free Market News now that um, says that the scientists are catching up, it looks like. All right, uh, let's see. What else do we have to share with you? What time is it? All right. Missing links. Wow, lots of talk about intelligent design versus evolution. And all this stuff going on. This was actually sort of uh, uh, popped a, uh, popped its head up at the Bioneers conference a couple of times, and uh, we'll touch on some of that in these interviews um, that uh, uh, that I'm going to play for you in a little while. But I found an interesting story um, from the Boston Globe, uh, and it's entitled "Missing Links: Proponents of Intelligent Design Have Exploited a Vexing Question at the Heart of Darwin's Theory." Now say two leading biologists, scientists can and must answer back. Uh, In a federal courtroom last week in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, site of an ongoing trial to decide whether ninth grade biology students in Dover should be required to hear about intelligent design, Michael Bea, a professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University, took the stand. Bea is the originator and main proponent of the term irreducible complexity, a pillar of intelligent design, which refers to the notion that certain organic structures are too intricate to have evolved on their own. Outlining his ideas for the court, Bea asserted that the flagellum of bacteria, uh, the tail they use to swim, which Bea compares to an outboard motor, are just inexplicable structures. The parts are ordered for a purpose and therefore speak to design, he says. Virtually all biologists dismiss Bea's claims, indeed, mostly intelligent design as a claim that research on complex structures is not possible. Uh, a position they reject. This is one reason biologists, uh, to, dismay, to the dismay of some of evolution's most uh, vocal supporters, have often ignored the intelligent design movement altogether. Uh, there are clear signs, however, that the looming presence of uh, intelligent design has started having a discernible impact on evolutionary scientists. While it may not be driving their research or dampening their 
sometimes boisterous internal debates, the public controversy may be focusing and forcing biologists of all kinds, and not just evolutionary biologists, to take a wide-angled view of their field to examine how their current research contributes to evolutionary theory and to consider how best to present evolution in the public sphere. And this is a long art- article that uh, that goes on quite a bit, uh, but it's basically evolutionists uh, trying to come up with a better uh, model, a better vehicle to present their particular arguments, just as uh, as the intelligent designers have uh, gotten what they believe now is a better vehicle for their particular argument. And my position has always been that it doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. Uh, the arguments on both sides are in, are in themselves irreducible complexities. And the debate between evolution and creationism or evolution and intelligent design for me is not a debate at all. I see that they can co-exist. I think that there is obvious evidence of evolution. You know, if you get away from the fossil record, if you get if you get hung up on the fossil record, well, okay, but you can evolution uh happens in all different in many different ways, you know. Culture evolves, a society evolves, organisms evolve. Uh, I'm going to do an interview uh, play an interview that we did with Lynn Margulis, uh, Dr. Lynn Margulis from University of Massachusetts Amherst. And uh, what she shows in her research is just astonishing. I mean, literal organisms, microorganisms, uh, for example, uh, overtaking and ingesting another microorganism and then morphing, changing, evolving into a completely different organism. All of this in real time, live, watching it with our cameras. We watched it. And it was an amazing thing. And I suggest that anybody interested in evolution uh, should should start to uh, look into the work of Dr. Lynn Margulis. And you'll have more information about her coming up in just a little while. But uh, but the problem for science and for evolutionists is who pushed the go button. And this is, the answer is probably with the intelligent designers. Uh, you know, I mean, who knows, but uh, something kick-started the whole thing. And... Maybe we just don't ever know what that is. That's the whole nature of it. You know, I've, I've, I've thought for a long time now that the beginnings of wisdom, the beginnings of knowledge are to, are to, are to take a step back and accept that there's an inherent sort of messiness in the way that we describe the world and the universe. I mean, uh, where, as I've said before, is it written that humans should be able to give a full accounting of creation on all levels and know the secrets of the universe? It's arrogant and hubristic and typical. 
but uh, I don't know that we'll ever uh, know who pushed the go button. But once the once the button was pushed, I think it's very difficult to argue against evolution. Uh, I mean, we see it all around us. Uh, look at the evolution of technology. You know, uh, and these things are are are. are they don't they don't happen in some systems and not in others you know they happen in systems in general uh, and that includes human systems animal systems biological systems geologic systems thermodynamic systems all those things systems in general weather systems whatever anyway okay uh let's see what else we want to talk about beyond human Here's one for you. You know, I mentioned Ray Kurzweil on the program once in a while, and we've interviewed uh, his partner, Dr. Terry Grossman. Uh, they've written a book together called A Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. And uh, Ray has written another book recently uh, called The Singularity is Near. And just the concept of, of the, the singularity is something that we should talk about sometime, but don't really have time right now. But let's uh, read a little bit of this, and you can kind of consider what might be coming around the corner. Beyond Human is from the New York Times. Many of the fans milling into this year's postseason baseball games have been wearing authentic Major League uniforms with Guerrero or Oswald stitched on the back. True, society has traditionally encouraged kids to fantasize what they'll be as adults, but most of the people I've seen in $200 regulation shirts are adults. What they're fantasizing about is an alternative adult identity for themselves. Why do they do this? The literary critic Paul Fussell once speculated that wearers of legible clothing like T-shirts were merely losers trying to associate themselves with a success, whether it be a product or an institution. A conservative view held that dressing like a child meant shrinking and shirking the responsibilities of adulthood. It was a subset of dressing like a slob. But these explanations do not cover the ballpark people or a similar phenomenon, those weekend bicyclists in their expensive, expensive pretend racer costumes with European team logos and company trademarks. The message in their clothing is aimed not at others, but at themselves. It is a do-it-yourself virtual reality. Abandoning your own world for a made-up one is an ever-larger part of adult life. For the futurist Ray Kurzweil, this is only the beginning. According to his new book, The Singularity is Near, we are approaching the age of full immersion virtual reality. Thanks to innovations in genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics, you'll be able to design your own mental habitat. You'll be able to sleep with your favorite movie star in your head. <laughs> These same technologies will help us overcome our genetic heritage. We'll live longer, become smarter. We'll learn how our brains operate and devise, devise computers that function like them. Then the barrier between our minds and our computers will disappear. The part of our memory that is literally downloaded will grow until the non-biological portion of our intelligence will predominate. But this raises questions. <laughs> what will then be the point of unenhanced human beings? What will become of our relationship to one another? Anyway... Story goes on uh, a little bit further, but uh, the bottom line is that the technology really is moving into areas that are becoming both 
dreamlike and nightmarish at the same time. And the way we move into these spaces is going to determine uh, what the result of this technology is for individuals and for culture, society, whatever. Uh, we're probably going to see some amazing uh, things uh, coming down the pike and not not too far uh, in the future, including uh, things like VRML uh, web communications, you know, a virtual reality Internet connection. Uh, people are going to be walking around, you know, 90% immersed in the Internet in a VR connection. Now, this is stuff that's right here. It's on the. Uh, it's now on the event horizon. We can see it coming. The technology is, or has been developed, and uh, it's just a matter of uh, of uh, the will of the market to bring it to bear. And uh, so, who was it? Uh, Huxley, Brave New World, right? Well, it's true. Uh, it is uh, going to be a strange place for sure. Lots of interesting uh, stuff coming. But if you uh, if you can stay on top of it, I think, and uh, manage to reconcile these sort of things in your own mind, in your own world, well, they're like anything else. You can take advantage of it, use it. You know, hopefully for something worthwhile and for something good, true, beautiful, art, creativity, magic. <laughs> so. All right, uh, let's see. All right, we have a wonderful sort of uh, music thing I want to tell you about tonight. I've I've been uh, contemplating lots of different things with the show lately and uh, expanding the, the range of music that we play as one of them. I play a lot of sort of uh, r- rock and roll, I guess, is the best way to put most of the music that I play. And most of it is just sort of my favorite stuff that I've listened to for a long, long time that I continue to listen to. New stuff, old stuff, in between. But I have lots of other interests in music as well. My father is a total audiophile and has probably one of the most amazing record collections uh, that, that you've ever seen outside of the KOPN uh, music library across, uh, across the hall from me here. But anyway, I grew up with lots of uh, different uh, music being played in the background and I uh, thank my dad so much uh, for uh, building that love of music in me. And uh, it turns out that my new webmaster, uh, whose name is Larry Norager, um, he's actually quite a musician himself, and uh, he has done all kinds of things with some amazing artists and is an amazing, uh, amazing artist himself. Uh, but he has been doing all my website stuff for me at, at MikeHagan.com, and I, w- I want to mention that again so people can go there and check it out and tell me what they think and see if they find errors or what works and what doesn't and if they like it or whatever. So anyway, if you go over to uh, com, uh, you'll see the work of Larry Norger. Uh, but anyway, he has these amazing music connections, and he... Uh, ran into an old friend uh, who's just sort of making his move into the mainstream, and uh, I want to try to help him by playing some of his music. Um, his name is Don Miller, and my friend Larry and him used to work actually at the Sheridan Hotel in Hawaii, like back in 1975. And there was this club uh, that was called the Infinity Lounge, and uh, 
they played there for a long, long time and uh, had a four-piece and did all kinds of everything from standards to uh, Stevie Wonder and all kinds of different stuff. But anyway, uh, it's a cool story between a couple of old friends and Don now uh, just released some new music with Herb Albert. And uh, when I was growing up, my dad used to play Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. I used to totally dig it. And so this is a new release from the incredible Michael Zager, uh, Don Miller playing bass on this particular piece, Herb Albert on trumpet, and uh, Julio Fernandez uh, playing the tenor saxophone uh, sax. And, of course, Julio Fernandez uh, with um, legendary uh, jazz fusion group Spyro Gyra. So, all right, uh, here you go for Larry and for Don Miller. I love it. Thanks uh, for the great music, and uh, we'll get back with you in just a little while. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
Alright. There you have it. Brand new stuff. Uh, Herb Albert. Don Miller on bass. Herb, of course, from the Tijuana Brass. One of the guys that formed A&M Records as well, if I remember correctly. Anyway, uh, Herb Albert on trumpet and Julio Fernandez uh, playing the saxophone there. Wonderful stuff. And thanks to Larry and for uh, for Don for making that music available uh, to Radio Orbit and to the listeners out there. Great stuff. Okay, so it's top of the hour. Okay, as I said, uh, we're going to air some of the stuff that I did last weekend at the Bioneers by the Bay conference at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And uh, there were some 15, 16 interviews over a few three-day period. I won't have a chance to air them all, but I'll uh, give you a good taste of it. The first one here is Julia Butterfly Hill. And uh, uh, Julia has a wild story, if you're not familiar with her story. But uh, she uh, is an activist extraordinaire, I guess, if you're interested in the uh, quote-unquote environmental causes and this sort of thing. But her personal story is just an amazing one, whether you agree with her uh, politics or not. And it happened, uh, it began in 1997, and I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you really briefly here because she doesn't talk about it in the interview that we did with her. Uh, but... Uh, she was sort of single-handedly taking on a logging company that was trying to uh, cut down an old-growth redwood forest in Northern California. And basically, she just climbed up this one tree, uh, took what she could with her, uh, but ended up spending 742 days or something like this uh, in the tree, literally did not leave the tree, came close to being killed a number of times, and it's just a remarkable story. And Anyway, she's a quite an amazing woman, and her spirit uh, really, uh, really shines uh, through when you talk with her. So anyway, Julia Butterfly Hill uh, was uh, the uh, opening guest at the Bioneers by the uh, by the Bay Conference, and uh, I had the opportunity to interview her with uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith, and uh, here's that uh, that interview. It's about ten minutes long, and if you have any comments. You know, I'll open the phone lines up at 573-443-8255. And in between these interviews, uh, between one and another, uh, if there's any calls, we can talk about them. If not, I'll just sort of roll uh, between the, uh, between this one and the next and just sort of give you a little bit of background out on them as we go. All right. Okay, one more time, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. And this is uh, a recording from last Friday, uh, the 13th of October at the Bioneers by the Bay Conference in uh, Massachusetts. All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Mike Hagan, and I'm with Joanna Harcourt-Smith, broadcasting live from the Bioneers by the Bay Conference in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. It's uh, Friday morning, October the 14th, and we just got things going here, and uh, we're lucky enough to get to hear Julia Butterfly-Hill speak first off this morning. And Joanna, why don't you say hi real fast, and then we can uh, talk with Julia a little bit. Hi there, everybody in Marin. I want to send our hearts out to embrace you, and uh, we feel you with us. So um, we will start our little conversation with Julia. And uh, I want to ask right off the bat about your bus trip, Julia, which has brought you here. The bus trip has been life at its most divine. And what I mean by that is so often we are conditioned to think that divine means when everything's working perfectly and we're all in this joyful, blissed out state. 
in my life I found that divine is its most powerful when when what I'm hoping for or what I expect is beginning to break down and the reason I say that is because it gives me a chance to show up in a whole new way and in the face of breakdown how I choose to show up is how I can access and channel the divine versus when things are in their good flow we start forgetting connection we start forgetting really what it means to be in the space of the divine it's more like a a visionary head thing and not so much a full-on experience of the divine so the bus that I'm traveling in is a bus that's powered by recycled vegetable oil that we get from behind restaurants it has solar panels on top that power the energy inside the bus all of the appliances on the bus on the bus are energy efficient our stove uses corn alcohol to run instead of petroleum we capture our gray water on board on a tank and use the gray water to flush the toilet instead of fresh water all the materials inside are non-toxic and organic I mean the whole bus is a model of sustainability and mechanical things do break down and I don't know anyone who owns a vehicle that hasn't had to take it into the shop at some point and wouldn't you know it we had to take ours into the shop in Ohio because a bolt fell off of a piece of equipment and got lodged in a very important piece of equipment and cracked it and then made the transmission seize. So it's amazing how something as small as a bolt can wreak such uh, intense change within the bus. For me, that was a perfect example of, of what happens in our life, too, because sometimes it's the small things that seem insignificant that can wreak some pretty big havoc on us and what's important for us to remember in those moments is that we're the ones who are in control of how we respond and we are so often at the effect of things that we're, we think that our response is because of what's happened like what's happened is driving us instead of us choosing to be in the driver's seat even if the bus is broken down <laughs> so for me what's been fun, what's been really fun in this process is I actually made a commitment before I went on tour that because I know of the challenges that come up on tour, my commitment was anytime there's any form of a breakdown, not just in the bus, but in interpersonal communication with the team or a challenge that might be happening at the event, that anytime there was any form of a breakdown, my commitment was to use that as an opportunity to be grateful. So I have created this practice of being grateful in, in the face of the bolts jamming transmission in our lives and uh, it's really it's really fun and it's been really really powerful because it's not been easy there's been some huge challenges we've had to overcome to make it here on time and the beautiful thing is I'm more happy and more grateful than when I started the trip uh, that's just absolutely wonderful Mike you have a question uh, well, I actually have a number of them, but we don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm trying to pick the best one that I could think of. And you mentioned something while you were speaking about uh, the privilege of being here, and it was something that really resonated with me. Uh, privilege leading to responsibility to contribute, I think, is something along, along those lines. Maybe you could expand on that just a little bit. Sure. The, we have lived in times where for so long now that have created systems of injustice that allow for some to have incredible and extreme amounts of privilege and others to be struggling to survive. And in our those of us who are becoming awakened, we've been working on on addressing the challenges around how has certain resources been aggregated into certain hands and taken away from others. The challenge in that place is that oftentimes the, the conversation becomes very judgmental and critical about, uh, and, and including in ourselves, about how 
we are ashamed of the privilege. For those of us who start becoming awakened, there's a certain amount of shame that comes attached to the fact that we have that privilege and others are literally starving in our streets and around the world and having bombs dropped on them and, and suffering from diseases that are completely curable and all of those things that we then start to live in the realm of shame, which actually takes away any good that we could actually do with our privilege because the shame and the judgment kills that off. So for me, I bring up the idea about privilege as a way for us to get powerful with it and to actually take on the responsibility that comes with that privilege with joy and with integrity and with commitment. So for us to be in this room, in this college campus, together at a Bioneers conference where we're beaming back and forth with each other and having these phenomenal speakers and workshops, there's so much privilege that's interwoven that makes this conference happen. And we can either go into a space of judgment and and feeling ashamed and killing off any good we might do, or we can say, how can we leverage this privilege as a connection for change? How can we leverage this to make a difference and bring us all up together and create that equality and justice and healing that our world needs? Wonderful. So, Julia, uh, you said uh, while you were speaking that we greet each other with, hello, what do you love to do? And that is a great joy in my in my life to do that. Actually, I uh, when somebody asks me what I do, I say, please ask me what I love. Mm-hmm. So I ask you, what do you love to do? I, what I love to do is be in loving and joyous service to the world. And it took me a while to 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 distill it down, and once I got to the distillation, that's really what it was. My purpose, my passion, my commitment in using up useful oxygen and using up resources on this planet that I have to contribute back if I'm taking something from this beautiful planet. And my commitment is to contribute back being in loving and joyous service every single day and doing that with integrity. And that's what I love to do. And sometimes it leads me to a conference like this and sometimes it leads me to the front line of direct action and sometimes it leads me into communities that are suffering that need some support and healing. The ways it looks are constantly shifting and evolving, but the underlying thread is love, integrity, and joyous service. I'll ask one more question if you don't mind. Uh, uh, There was another thing that you mentioned during your talk that sort of related to this Uh, this idea of responsibility and contribution, but it had also to do with the courage to approach others. And and this whole thing is about connection and about approaching others, not just about coming by yourself and leaving by yourself. Um, How did you do it? You mentioned that you're not that comfortable on stage, although people assume that you probably are. Uh, How do you get through that yourself to maybe help people get, get along with that in their own lives? One of the things I've realized is that my heart palpitations every time and my shortness of breath and my butterfly relatives running around in my belly, that (laughs) they are all really my reminders that I'm human and that I care. And so I try and focus on that. Instead of focusing on, oh, my goodness, I'm scared out of my mind, I go into the physical feeling of it and recognize when I get that feeling in my body that I'm actually... It's coming from a place that I'm human and that I care. And I realize in that space that if I ever stop getting nervous, it's probably a good sign that I need to take another look at what I'm doing because that means that a part of me is just doing it because I'm used to it now. And then I'm not really connected in that space. 
I'm connected through my humanity. I'm connected through my deep care. And if that disappears, then I need to check myself and see where I can reconnect into the movement and offer myself in a different way so that I don't lose touch with those core values. Wonderful to share tummy butterflies with you. (laughs) And thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. This is Mike Hagan. I'm with Joanna Harcourt Smith, and uh, we'll be uploading this to the podcast shortly, and we'll be back to you uh, for the rest of the day and for the next two days with lots and lots more of this wonderful information uh, coming from the Bioneers by the Bay Conference in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And uh, uh, in the blessed, blessed pouring rain. That's right, and we're looking at that as a positive thing too these days. As everybody's here, so okay. Back in a while. Thanks, and uh, stick with us. All right, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And that was uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. And we'll continue with some other stuff. I'll uh, put some music on here and see if the phone rings. Uh, 573-443-8255 if you want to chat. If not, uh, we'll come back and do another interview in just a few minutes. In the meantime, this is the Smashing Pumpkins with Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Back in just a few minutes, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. The world is a vampire
is Bullet with Butterfly Wings. That's for Julia Butterfly Hill. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. Where else are you going to get that? Herb Albert <laughs> on the trumpet, and then uh, and then the Pumpkins uh, to follow that up. Okay. Well, I don't know if it works or not, but it works for me. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to some of these interviews from the Bioneers Conference uh, that I was at last weekend. This next one is uh, with a gentleman whose name is Gunter Pauli, and he's quite an interesting guy. He has developed something that he calls the Ziri, Z-E-R-I, concept. Studies how to uh, use water and food, comfortable shelter, health care, reliable energy. He, he shows how to achieve all these things using things that already exist. He... Uh, illustrated his ideas with the example of what uh, has been accomplished at a place called Gaviotas, a community in uh, the, the, the country of Colombia. Uh, and he helped to found this community with another gentleman whose name was Paolo Lugari. Uh, anyway, they took an area that was basically a barren desert and transformed it into a lush rainforest. And he illustrated uh, this systems way of thinking uh, with a description of how uh, these processes uh, can 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 be done and accomplished. And uh, anyway, it's a fascinating interview, and uh, he touches on much of what he talked about in his presentation uh, here in a few minutes, uh, the 11 or 12 minutes that he spent uh, with Joanna and I. So I hope you enjoy this uh, again. Gunter Pauli from the Bioneers by the Bay conference uh, just about a week and uh, week and a couple of days ago. Here we are, back again, uh, podcasting from Bioneers by the Bay in uh, Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Uh, Mike Hagen and Joanna Harcourt-Smith. We have Gunter Pauli. It's Gunter Pauli, right? We have Gunter Pauli, who just spoke downstairs, and I'm going to have him introduce himself so he can tell all you cyber creepy crawlies uh, who he is and what he is about. I am an enzyme. An enzyme is uh, a little critter that tries to make uh, digestion for others easier. I love it. So, what am I doing? I'm doing very little. I am um, not quite useless, but not very important. But I'm trying to make people who are already committed, who are interested, who are motivated, who want to get out of their box, who want to do different, to make it easier for them to do so much more, so much better. That's what I do. What do you love? I love my children. I have two sons. I mean, uh, it's the priority in life. That's where I strive for and that's what I live for. So you love the future? Well, if you look at the world through the eyes of your children, you have only one option, that's to look into the future. But you have to look at it through the eyes of your children. You cannot look at reality through your own eyes. I would like you to expand on that, please, Gunther. Well, we come with our background, with our knowledge, with our so-called wisdom. Conditioning. Well, I would say it's wisdom of the past. I wouldn't call it conditioning. It's the wisdom of the past. But the wisdom of the past doesn't get us to the future. If you're saying, for example, um, if you give a man a fish a day, he will not be hungry for the day. If you teach him how to fish, he will overfish. 
So, don't say that now he can feed himself. No, no, he may feed himself, but that's at the cost of overfishing every single ocean in the world. So, that's not the solution. We need to get out of the box. We need to understand that if you teach everyone how to fish and you get more technology into fishing, then, you know, there's no fish anymore. So, that's not the solution anymore. The problem is that we're thinking only about one problem with one solution. We want quick solutions for quick problems. And so, therefore, if you're a child, you don't have the stupidity of only looking at one reason and one explanation. That's that who doesn't understand it. But the children, in their wildest dreams and in wildest imagination, always see everything all the time. And so, if you look at the same reality through the eyes of the children, you're looking at a different reality. And if you take the time to listen to their wisdom, then you will be able to find a path towards a future which is attractive for everyone. Thank you, Gunther. Wow, uh, that that really strikes home with me. Actually, I have a two-year-old son, uh, and who's the light of my life. And and when the the rapidity of your answer to that question, it was there, there was no question about what the answer was. As soon as Joanna asked it, you immediately said it was your children that you love, the most important thing. And something that seems to be coming through as a thread throughout many of the speakers that have been here has been this idea of looking at things as large systems, dynamic systems, as opposed to uh, a much more narrow uh, and uh, uh, less broad way of looking at these things. Maybe you could address this idea of, of, of large dynamic systems and how these things you're talking about are important. I wouldn't like to look at a large dynamic system. I'd rather look at um, many little systems networked together and networks of systems which are connected to other networks of systems because in the end of the day a large system is going to die. It's only the small little systems which are connected to the local community, to that local ecosystem that are the ones that are going to thrive. And we don't want large things to emerge because large things, the only large thing we want is Gaia. It's big enough. But below it, it's going to be a multiple of networks of networks of networks of networks. And so what we're needing to do is to understand how each one of us, by taking initiative at the grassroots level, is actually connecting to another network and another network and another network. And that's why I say I'm the enzyme, because I'm popping in and moving around the world, and I'm moving into all these networks around the world in order to make these networks to the best of my ability, more efficient, and seeing so much more what they think they can do. Because if you're local, you may not know that you're moving the earth. If you're local and you're dedicated to your grassroots, you don't know what you can do by drinking a bottle of water a day. If you drink a bottle of water a day, you can regenerate 20 acres of rainforest in 25 years. Just don't buy it from Fiji or just don't buy it from uh, Coca-Cola. Just buy it from a source that is regenerating the world. Fantastic. Could you speak a bit about generosity, true generosity, and perhaps tenderness as well? The earth, nature, is in abundance. It doesn't have to be generous because it is abundance. So, generosity is needed when there's scarcity. We don't live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world of scarcity of vision, of insight. But the world is innate abundant. The problem is that people like me who train like an MBA, we only live and have value when there's scarcity. So we imagine scarcity for everything. And since we imagine scarcity of everything, we have a role to play. The first thing we've got to realize is that Earth is abundant. Abundance is everywhere. 
Even there where we see nothing, it is abundant. So generosity is not needed. But the other word you ask me, tenderness, is the caring. That's something totally different. You know, again, the world is always tender, even if it looks like it's aggressive. It's aggressive because we want to see it through the eyes of the aggressor. And if you're an aggressor, then you will see others who are aggressive. But if you're tender, then you will see everyone else being tender, even if it looks like they're eating each other. I mean, let's just realize that 10% of our body are bacteria. 10% of our dry weight are bacteria. We can't survive in this world without them. Now, how do we treat bacteria? We call them germs, and we want to spray and kill them. You know, hey, let's, let's just wake up and realize that we get more germs in our mouth than there are people living on Earth. So, don't try to be an aggressor. Try to understand the generosity they're having thanks to the abundance. They don't have to make an effort to be generous. They are. Wow, powerful stuff. Uh, let me ask you, we, we haven't mentioned the Ziri Foundation yet, uh, and I'm going to give out the website. I should have done that at the beginning, but uh, for, for people who are interested in, in the, the ideas that, uh, that Gunther is talking about, you can check out uh, him and his work and uh, lots of information at www.ziri.org. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, about the Institute and what sort of people uh, are coming to you for help? We don't help. We don't provide any help. We don't provide any jobs. We don't provide any of that. What we want to be is actually people embark on a discovery of the wealth they have around them and they haven't realized yet. In them and around them. And in them, there you have a lot of people dedicated to it. But around them, the discovery around them, and that's why to me it's so important to look at a cup of coffee. Do you know, you drink coffee? I don't. You drink tea? Yeah, so when you drink tea, it's the same. Tea coffee, tea drinkers or coffee drinkers, both only consume less than 0.2% of the biomass generated by the farmer. Actually, tea drinkers only consume 0.1%. Coffee drinkers, they consume 0.2%. How could you ever expect a farmer to survive when the consumption model that has been designed only uses and gives value to 0.2%? And now you're drinking organic? You're still drinking only organic 0.2%. What happens to the 99.8% that's also organic and is not getting consumed? Just composting? So the party is for the bacteria? What we're doing is we're saying that if you discover your coffee, either at the coffee farm or in your home where you are buying and grinding the coffee, and you get that drash as leftover, all of these biomasses can be used to grow shiitake mushrooms. You know shiitake? I do. You like them? Are they cheap? They're not. Exactly. So, why don't we get cheap shiitake in your backyard? How? By using coffee. Because the only thing you did with the coffee is pour hot water through it. That means you just eliminated a lot of the bacteria and a lot of the microorganisms. You inoculated immediately with the shiitake. And three months later, you're harvesting your shiitake. Thanks to drinking coffee. Why don't we think like that? I mean, nature thinks like that. It's not because the coffee bean is full of caffeine and full of protein, but rich in caffeine, so therefore you can't give it to cattle, because if you give it to cattle, the cow will not give milk. She's stressed. So, the shiitake breaks down the caffeine, grows beautifully, fast, because it has the caffeine, and now the cow can eat the leftover of the coffee after you've harvested 
the shiitake because it's enriched in poly in, in, in proteins and in amino acids so now I have coffee mushrooms and meat and milk and if I'm a, a, an organic farmer then I'm going to have shade with banana trees now I have bananas and I'm going to have to use mint and lemongrass to chase the bugs away and now I have coffee and herbal tea <laughs> now this is thinking in a system this is where I go and say you coffee farmers think you're in a crisis I don't see a crisis I see the opportunity to generate 500 times more than you do now by just what you have available. That is the world of solutions of abundance. Absolutely fantastic. What is the very best, most wonderful thing you've learned from your sons? First of all is unconditional love. Unconditional. And it's wonderful to have someone around you who's totally unconditional. Thank you, Gunther. Okay. Gunther, thank you very much. My pleasure. A pleasure to talk with Gunther Pauli. And again, much more information available at www.zeri.org. All right, wonderful stuff from Gunther Pauli. Again, www.zeri.org. The information coming fast and furious from the Bioneers by the Bay Conference at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. This is Mike Hagan, again, signing off for myself and the lovely Joanna Harcourt-Smith sitting right across from me. And uh, we'll be back at you in just a little while. Good morning. This All right, uh, this is Mike. And it is about 12.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning now, the 25th of October. No, that was Gunter Pauli. Wonderful stuff. That guy was amazing. And uh, taught me how to grow shiitake mushrooms uh, out of coffee grounds or discarded tea leaves. Okay, what's next? I think we're going to listen to Lynn Margulis, Dr. Lynn Margulis. She is a distinguished professor of geosciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She speaks about uh, the thriving physiological system of life on Earth, uh, also known uh, as the Gaia concept. Uh, Lynn Margulis, uh, uh, in her presentation, took us through a brilliant uh, sweep uh, of geologic and biologic time. Uh, the main problem, she says, uh, is overpopulation, which uh, cannot be solved unless uh, education uh, is provided for everyone. However, uh, it's uh, ridiculous, in her opinion, to think that we can save the Earth, quote-unquote. After all, uh, we only arrived here three million years ago, while bacteria have been here for hundreds of millions of years. And uh, Lynn imagines the Earth singing, got along without you before we met, can get along without you now. <laughs> and so uh, Lynn uh, inputted a little bit of humility uh, into the conversation and uh, it was a pretty short interview only about five minutes but uh, worthwhile uh, to play tonight so anyway this is uh, Dr. Lynn Margulis and uh, we spoke with her just uh, last Friday Good morning and welcome to the Bioneers by the Bay Conference it's Saturday the 15th of October and this is Mike Hagan joining me again the wonderful Joanna Harcourt Smith uh, we were with you yesterday uh, we're continuing our podcast broadcast uh, from the conference today. Our first speaker uh, that we're going to have with us, actually, uh, is Dr. Lynn Margulis. 
we'll let her introduce herself, and uh, we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to get right to it here with uh, Dr. Margulis. One moment, please. Thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. But um, I'm actually in the Department of Geosciences, which is much broader than geophysics or geochemistry or geology. They say there are three kinds of rocks, hard rock, soft rock, and no rocks in our department. Anyway, uh, and I'm formally a distinguished university professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Yeah, right. So what do you want to ask me? Uh, I want to ask you what you think about the poetic poetization of the Gaia concept. Uh, uh, people who are using the Gaia concept to create poetry or to create mythology. Well, the Gaia concept is that the Earth's surface temperature, its atmospheric reactive gas composition, and its acidity, alkalinity, are modulated, actively regulated, physiologically regulated by the sum of the biota. The Gaia hypothesis does not specifically talk about Homo sapiens as a species. The average life of any species, and there are roughly 30 million now, different kinds of life, different kinds of species, 99.99% of all species to be documented in the fossil record are extinct. So just as if you believe Joanna, that you're going to die someday. I think, do you believe, Mike, that you're going to die someday? I mean, there are people that really don't believe they're going to die, but I certainly know I am going to because that's been the fate of everybody before. And so we inductively decide that we're going to die. In the same way, this species will extinguish. And there are various many ways of extinguishing. Many of them involve geocosmical phenomenon for which, over which you have no, no control at all. For example, the Great Cretaceous extinction by a meteorite, uh, I mean, the impact of a planetoid, you know, a planet-sized body. At any rate, the poetization is fine. It's just returning to the Homeric hymn of Gaia, the goddess of the earth. It's fine. But to think that there's something special or chosen about people is part of the human delusion. Without human delusion, we wouldn't have 6,000 million people on the earth and only 10,000 chimps and the number of chimps declining every day and the number of people rising every day because it is that delusionary poetic spirit that is the basis of tribalism. And tribalism is the way people go beyond their African environment, they don't actually go on. We don't actually go beyond. What we do is we bring the African tropical environment to places like the Antarctica. So we expand by bringing our habitat to places where it shouldn't be, it never was. And, and the, our success in numbers is due to that poetic, mythical sense that you just referred to. So do I censor that? No. But do I think it's science? Absolutely not. It's not science at all. Um, but I think what we should do is apply scientific reasoning and its wonderful methods, limited methods, but wonderful methods. That is to, to um, apply what I said today, which is David Bohm's basic philosophy is science, I'm sorry, but science is the search for truth, whether or not we like that truth. When I've noticed in my career and, and, and many, from many other people too, that when science 
uh, so-called science is applied to people, the standards change completely. They lower completely because people are so full of preconceived notions that if you get close to people, that's why social science isn't really social science and anthropology is not really the study of man. Um, you have a different standard. I mean, physics and, physics and astronomy, and to some extent biology, is much more directly scientific. At any rate, the, so the contradiction that I see is between the truth that's out there and what people believe. And what you're asking about is, should Gaia become an image? Well, I think it's better than the, than the, um, the terrific um, parochial sectionalism that these hideous monotheistic religions try to impose on people. Anyway, that's the long answer. Maybe I can go back to listen to this wonderful program. This program is marvelous. Thank you very much. We appreciate We appreciate. All right, back in just a few minutes uh, with the next uh, uh, podcast. And um, we enjoy being with you. And we will be back online from Bioneers by the Bay at uh, the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And uh, a quick thank you to the Marion Institute. Uh, you can check out information for the Marion Institute at www.marioninstitute.org. Back in just a few minutes. This is Mike and Joanna, and we'll talk to you in a few. All right, uh, and this is Mike talking with you live again. And the next piece I want to air for you is a gentleman by the name of Jim Kunstler. And... Uh, Jim Kunstler has written a book. It's called The Long Emergency. <laughs> and uh, it's actually a great title uh, for a pretty unfortunate topic, but one that we're going to have to face here apparently pretty soon, uh, whether we believe it or not, uh, whether it's true or not, this whole idea of peak oil and what is happening with petroleum, uh, not in our country, uh, although uh, specifically in our country, but uh, but all around the world, and uh, James Kunstler, one of the most uh, <laughs> lively interviews I've ever done. You'll know what I'm talking about in a second. But the guy was just just a wild card, um, but really cool and at the same time uh, stunning. Some of the things that he's uh, he's talking about. So anyway, Jim Kunstler. Uh, the author of The Long Emergency, and this is uh, an interview that Joanna Harcourt-Smith and I did with him uh, just last weekend on Saturday. All right, here we are back again. Uh, good afternoon or good morning. I'm not quite sure. We're right at about the boundary point, just about uh, noon on Sunday, the 15th of October. And this is Mike Hagan along with Joanna Harcourt-Smith broadcasting and podcasting live from the Bioneers by the Bay Conference at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, and our next guest is Mr. Jim Kunstler, and he's written an amazing book uh, that's called The Long Emergency, and he just presented at the conference here, and we're going to let Jim do an introduction for himself, uh, but there's a number of questions that I'd like to get to uh, after that because I'm very interested in the topic, and uh, we'll get right to Jim here, and then we'll start asking some questions. Thanks, Jim, for being with us today. It's nice to be here, Mike. What we should do first uh, is give out contact information and how to learn more about Jim's work. And the website where you can find out about what he's all about is at www.kunstler.com. And I guess the first question is this. Uh, uh, the topic is the long emergency. And for the people who are listening uh, and who have not had the benefit of being here, uh, let's start there. Tell them what, 
the emergency is? Well, it's a period of time that we're facing uh, ahead, really globally, when um, some of the tremendous problems involving the global energy supplies are going to um, ramify with other global problems like climate change to produce uh, a lot of instability in the world, uh, especially uh, geopolitical uh, problems, problems growing food uh, in lots of places, um, uh, tremendous economic uh, problems and financial problems, and, and probably um, a, uh, um, a real uh, decline in global, in st a decline in standards of living and life expectancies in the most advanced countries. Actually, let me pass the microphone over to Joanna. She has a look that she has a good question. Well, I listened. To, I was downstairs many times. Unfortunately, Mike is not downstairs because he, he works very hard on the technique of this. But I was downstairs, and I listened to you. And I breathe an enormous sigh of relief. Actually, I'll tell you what I wanted to do yesterday. I wanted to put an earth flag around me and... Um, probably without any other clothes on and run across the stage screaming help and the point is that I feel like you feel that the most hopeful thing to say is that it's over well I, I'm not even sure that I'm saying it's over I, I'm saying that we're in trouble and I, I don't consider myself you know what, what I'm describing are uh, really serious discontinuities in many of the things that we take for granted, including really fundamental things like how we feed ourselves, especially in the advanced countries. Um, but it's not necessarily the end of the world, but it, it could be uh, pretty grim. Well, when I say it's, uh, when I say it's over, I, I say that it's a relief for me to hear you say that this cannot go on the way it does. I mean, if, if one has the minimum... Perspective. It's clear to me that this this can't go on like it is. Well, I like to think that uh, that I live in a reality-based community, and um, so you know people can decide from themselves for themselves. They can read the long emergency, read the headlines, look at what's going on around them. The hurricanes of 2005 have been a very instructive um, uh, set of events because they've accelerated the problem in America. And uh, American citizens are now faced with two um, pretty forceful signs that they're in trouble. One is that they're paying a lot of money for gasoline, a lot more than they were used to. But perhaps uh, even more insidiously um, difficult and harmful is the uh, prospect for supernaturally high home heating costs this winter. And uh, because uh, when all is said and done, the natural gas situation in America is arguably more ominous than even the oil situation, and that's pretty bad itself. But um, you, it's, it's much more difficult to import natural gas, even if you can pay for it, because it requires uh, liquefying it and sending it long distance on very ex expensive tanker ships and uh, unloading it at special terminals that nobody wants to have built anywhere near them. So we're not prepared to import natural gas. We really have to depend on what we get in North America. And, and we're, you know, the storms were so destructive to the um, platforms for drilling for natural gas in the Gulf that we're really behind the eight ball now. And a lot of people, it, you know, I think that more people may freeze in the Midwest this winter than, than died in Hurricane Katrina. 
You know, Jim, I actually read an article last week that there are some 80,000 people without electricity in the Chicago area right now uh, that haven't been able to pay their uh, their bills for uh, for electricity and gas. Uh, so uh, I'd, I'd like you to address the... Uh, the topic of petroleum, maybe in general, uh, there's a lot of talk of the peak oil issue and this sort of thing, but it seems that our entire culture, the whole planet, seems to be a petroleum-based thing. It's not just for gasoline and for heating, but it's uh, agricultural products for uh, fertilizer, uh, pharmaceuticals are all uh, petroleum-based, or much of them. Um, maybe you could talk about the significance of what we're talking about on peak oil, and is it uh, how serious is it and how real is it? Well, we have every reason to believe that we're close to or at the global oil production peak, which means that, you know, after total aggregate oil production, the world will, will fall, while the demand will not fall, and there will be, uh, you know, uh, basically a big fight over the remaining resources. You know, how hot that fight will get, we don't know. How, uh, I think what we can predict is that it will um, desperately destabilize uh, the, the, the complex systems that we depend on, including how we grow our food, you know, how we run our economies, these really very fundamental things, uh, how financial instruments behave in, uh, in a situation where industrial growth no longer occurs the, the way it, it has been experienced for 100 years. And, uh, you know, j just the, the food production thing uh, itself is, is very interesting. There was some notion over the last 25 years that all these predictions about the world population growing too large for it to feed itself, you know, were all um, baloney. Um, but in fact, you know, the green revolution of the late 20th century was mostly misunderstood. Most people think that it was a, you know, a revolution in genetic uh, uh, um, uh, plant breeding so that we, we uh, created strains of, of rice and wheat and things that were supernaturally productive. Um, this wasn't quite as true as the fact that we simply poured a lot more oil and natural gas on the soil, wherever it was, and produced more crops. That's what the Green Revolution was really about. So, you know, if nothing else, we're going to begin by seeing a lot of people start to starve in the world. Of course, that will tend to ramify with the fact that uh, climate change, global warming, is having an effect on uh, growing seasons and, 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 and crop uh, yields. And, uh, and, and that, in turn, is being uh, ramified by certain environmental uh, problems that are underway. For example, in China, where water use is so enormous, the water table in the northern areas of China, where they grow wheat for, you know, for noodles and things, because, you know, that's a big part of their diet, um, the water table there is going down at between 10 and 12 feet a year. And they uh, are becoming net food importers for the first time uh, in anybody's memory. I mean, apart from, you know, war and, and, and those kinds of emergencies, at least in recent history. So, um, you know, we face tremendous problems with that. In America, you know, in America, we have elaborated this living system for ourselves, the American dream, suburban, sprawl, uh, living arrangement that has no future. And um, what's even worse is that we've come to base our economy on the continued building of more of it. You know, an interesting thing, I think, uh, I think we will see an interesting thing happen with that uh, very soon. Um, as the hurricanes uh, came along in August and September, 
and the price of gasoline went way up, and it became well known that the price of home heating was going to be going up. You know, I think a lot of people have changed their minds about buying those new 4,000 square foot houses out in Lazy Acres, 38 miles from downtown Dallas or Minneapolis. And pretty soon, you know, all those aggregate decisions are going to uh, start showing up in the uh, housing figures, and I think we will see the end of the, the housing bubble because of that. People are going to recognize that they can't afford to drive 100 miles a day, and they can't afford to own, uh, you know, houses that are four or 5,000 square feet and heat them. And um, it's going to change. That's going to be the beginning of some very big changes in this country. Thanks. Profound, uh, profound comments. Thanks. Back to Joanna. Now, uh, Jim, uh, would you be willing to tell me how you practice your awareness of the long emergency in your own life? I have a meditation technique where I stick my finger in a light socket, and it uh, tends to... Uh, uh, Illuminate? Yes, yeah, so it, it lights up my, my mind. Seriously? Of course. Well, you know, look... About it. Uh, you know, I'm just an, I'm just a regular guy trying to connect the dots. You know, I'm just a journalist, and I, you know, I'm an author uh, who's written a few books about suburbia, and you know, I've written about economics and stuff, and and uh, I'm just trying to connect the dots. What amazes me is uh, the inability of uh, the mainstream media to pay attention to this. You know, the week after Hurricane Rita knocked down all these oil platforms in the Gulf of Mexico, there was not one story in the Sunday news section of the New York Times about oil or gas. You know, so, you know, what does that tell you about the job that we're doing? And by the way, I like to remind my readers and listeners that I am allergic to conspiracy theories. You know, I'm the last person in the world who thinks that there's a cabal of, of uh, uh, malicious uh, corporate scheming capitalists out there trying to make our lives miserable. You know, everything that's happening to us in this country is a, is a result of choices that we have made collectively as a people, as a nation, and they've been very, very tragic choices, very unfortunate choices. You know, and, and, and it, you know, it's expressed by people like David Brooks in the New York Times, you know, the columnist who has been the cheerleader for suburbia for the last five years, saying, you know, suburbia must be great because people, so many people choose to live in it. Um, a totally illogical argument, by the way. And, you know, we're pretty much getting what we deserve. And we've gotten the leaders that we deserve. You know, uh, uh, there's a lady in my neighborhood who drives a Ford Explorer or Expedition or something like that with a bumper sticker on it that says, War is not the answer. Well, uh, for her, war uh, is the answer. Uh, uh, I've told her that several I, times. I I've told her... War, war's the answer. Stop complaining. Stop being a crybaby about it. Prepare for your children to be blown up in the desert somewhere in Asia. And, you know, quit whining. Quit being a whiner. You know, either that or, or, or change the way you live. But, you know, I, uh, the fact is that the American people have been complicit in this. And they are well represented. They are perfectly represented by their vice president, Dick Cheney, who said the American way of life was non-negotiable. Well... Dick Cheney and the American people are now going to find out that the American way of life will be negotiated by reality, our new arbitrator. I live, uh, I live in Europe, Jim, and uh, from where I live to Sevilla, to the town of Sevilla, is 140 kilometers. Once I go to Sevilla in my little Suzuki diesel, it costs me 
28 euros round trip. I borrowed uh, the Ford Explorer of a friend of mine because I lived in America before and I, I'm addicted, right? And I went to Sevilla and back and it cost me 104 euros. Well, That's did you get lunch that day? The, the Europeans definitely uh, are, are, you know, aping American behavior to some degree. And they are building some... Well, they totally. Are, yeah. Well, not totally. Not totally. They're building a lot of suburbs and they're, you know, they're driving a lot of cars. But I must say this. The Europeans did three things that we didn't do. They didn't destroy their cities. They didn't destroy their public transit. transit. Great trains. And they didn't destroy local agriculture. And... Those three things are going to make a big difference because, you know, when, when we get into serious trouble with fossil fuels, people in uh, uh, Barcelona and Zurich and Paris and Prague are going to be able to go to their jobs and, get, and go to the food market and le lead a normal life. People in Dallas and Minneapolis and Northern Virginia and Orlando, Florida and Los Angeles will not be able to lead a normal life. They will really be stuck, and the, our economy will be stuck with it. Thank you, Jim. Wow. Uh, again, uh, pretty striking stuff from Jim Kunstler, and I want to make sure that we give out uh, his website because there's a tremendous amount of information there as well. It's www.kunstler.com. That's K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. Jim, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. And uh, how about my book, The Long Emergency? How about it, The Long Emergency? Yeah, let's, uh, in fact, why don't you say a few words about it? Well, from the Atlantic Monthly Press, The Long Emergency, published last May, it will give you an idea about what we're in for, what we're up against, and the kind of intelligent responses that we might have in the face of these epoch problems that we face. Well, let's take one more minute and talk about some of those intelligent uh, solutions. Well, you know, people are always uh, criticizing me for, for not having a uh, handy-dandy remedy for, you know, the, these really enormous problems. But uh, there are intelligent responses, and, and, and they all come under the umbrella of downscaling and rescaling all of our activities in American life, from the way we grow our food, we're going to have to do that more locally, to the way we uh, uh, conduct commerce and trade. In other words, you know, Walmart with its 12,000-mile supply lines to the, the manufacturers in China, we're not going to be able to continue doing that anymore. You know, the warehouse on wheels, forget about it. Um, the 21st century is going to be much more about staying where you are than about constant mobility. And uh, we're, going to have to, we're going to have to reform the way we do schooling, the, the huge centralized schools of America, dependent on those yellow bus fleets that drive hundreds of thousands of miles for each school every year. You know, their history. Uh, uh, in fact, I, I go so far to predict that American children will be lucky if they get the equivalent of an eighth grade education 20 years from now. We're going to have to do a lot of, th a lot of things differently. We haven't been prepared, but it isn't too late to start making changes. Uh, and I've got to ask one last one then. Uh, with regard to energy, do you see anything on the horizon uh, that, that, that gets us out of the oil paradigm? Well, that's part of the wishful thinking that's going on, is that there's some, you know, some uh, unnamed they are going to come up with a miracle fuel that you know, will allow us to run Walmart and Walt Disney World and the interstate highway system without oil. It ain't going to happen. There's not going to be a hydrogen economy. No combination of alternative fuels will allow us to run what we're running. Um, we're going to use as many of them as we can, as much as we can, but we're going to have to change what we're running and the way we're running it drastically. 
All right. Well, uh, thanks again for your time. Serious, serious stuff from Jim Kunstler, and you can uh, uh, check out his information one more time at K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R dot com. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for being here. This is Mike and uh, Joanna Harcourt-Smith signing off uh, from the podcast at the Bioneers by the Bay. We'll be back at you in just a few minutes. All right, this is Mike and this is Jack Johnson. The Horizon has been defeated. We'll be back in just a few minutes. The Horizon has been defeated by the pirates of the new age. Alien casinos. Well, maybe it's just time to say that things can go bad and make you want to run away. But as we grow older, the trouble just seems to Future complications in the strings between the cans. But no prints can come from fingers if machines become our hands. And then our feet become the wheels. And then the wheels become the cars. And then the rigs begin to drill until the drilling goes too far. Defeated Jack Johnson. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's uh, 1 a.m. Tuesday morning, the 25th of October. And uh, with regard to uh, Jim Kunstler, uh, who you just heard uh, us interview a week and a half ago or so, uh, there's something else I want to mention here. This is from uh, uh, VermontRepublic.org, uh, from the Ver- Vermont Independence Convention. And a letter to the, uh, to the State House at Montpelier, Vermont. And uh, this is a secessionist uh, organization. And here's an idea. And these guys are on, uh, on this thing for real. And in fact, uh, I had a conversation with a gentleman last weekend when I was in Massachusetts about uh, the idea of secession. And uh, it may sound wacky. Uh, but these people are for real. And uh, anyway, uh, James Kunstler, 
the author of The Long Emergency, who you just heard, is going to be speaking there. Listen to this. Uh, James Howard Kunstler, author of The Long Emergency, will be the keynote speaker at the Vermont Convention on Independence to be held in the House Chamber of the State House in Montpelier on Friday, October 28th, uh, sponsored by the Second uh, Vermont Republic. The convention, which will begin at 9, 9 a.m., will conclude at 5 p.m., is open to the public and free of charge. The historic event will be the first statewide convention on secession in the United States since North Carolina voted to secede from the Union on May 20, 1861. Other speakers include a whole bunch of people. I'm not going to go through the list. The objectives of the convention are twofold. First, to raise the level of awareness of Vermonters uh, of the feasibility of independence as a viable alternative to a nation which has lost its moral authority and, its, uh, and is unsustainable. Second, to provide an example and a process for other states and nations which may be seriously considering separatism, secession, independence, and, sim- uh, and similar devolutionary strategies. The Second Vermont Republic is a peaceful, democratic, grassroots, libertarian, populist movement committed to the return to, uh, of Vermont to its status as an independent republic as it once was between 1777 and 17. 17- 91. Anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, info at uh, vermontrepublic.org if you're interested in this. But uh, serious talk about secession up there in uh, the upper New England area. And there's also a project called the Free State Project uh, that I'm familiar with, and I'm not sure how much success they're having. These are they're not uh, related these two organizations, but there are certainly people out there that are uh, unhappy with the way things are happening in this country and are trying to use. Uh, the rules and the laws that were set up by the founders of the country to uh, uh, to find uh, solutions for at least their own uh, their own neck of the woods. Anyway, all right, we're going to do uh, a few more interviews, uh, but I have to do something here uh, first off. Uh, this is a tribute uh, that I want to do for my sister. Actually, uh, my sister Lori uh, today. Uh, well, the 24th, actually. Uh, it's now an hour into the 25th. But uh, yesterday would have been her 45th birthday. And uh, she was killed in a car accident many, many years ago. 25 years ago, I guess it was now. Maybe 26. Uh, but uh, at any rate, a long time ago. And uh, I just wanted to read something. Uh, in honor of her and her lovely memory. I love you, Larry. And this is a wonderful poem by uh, William Butler Yeats, fantastic uh, Irish poet. It's called Sailing to Byzantium. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song the salmon falls, the mackerel-crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in that sensual music all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing, for every tatter in its mortal dress, nor is there singing school but studying, Monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. O sages standing in God's holy fire as in the gold mosaic of a wall. Come from the holy fire, 
pern in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul, consume my heart away sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make, of hammered gold and gold enameling, to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bow to sing to the lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come.
Tragically Hip from Phantom Power. That's the rules. And this is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Okay, uh, we're going to continue. I've got time for a couple more of these uh, interviews from the Bioneers Conference that I was at, uh, attending and um, uh, hosting the podcast with Joanna Harcourt-Smith just uh, last weekend. And we're going to listen to John Lash now. And by the way, uh, there are uh, ten more of these interviews that are available uh, to listen to and to download at a couple of different websites. Uh, the first is metahistory.org, M-E-T-A history.org, and just follow the podcast links. Or also you can go to Connecting for Change, connectingforchange.org, and uh, you can follow the podcast link there as well and listen to the ones that we didn't listen to tonight. Uh, the schedule is pretty booked for the next uh, while, and so I'm not going to be able to air any more of this stuff. I just want to give you a taste of some of the good stuff that I enjoyed and let you know that there's more of it out there, and you can check it out uh, at uh, those websites, and you can link there from, from my uh, site at RadioOrbit.com as well, uh, or MikeHagan.com, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N. And again, that's uh, uh, not quite... Uh, uh, off the ground yet, but very, very soon. So I'd appreciate anybody who uh, has an opportunity to go over there to, to the new website at www.mikehagan.com and let me know what you think. All right? Okay, uh, so here we go. John Lash, uh, the uh, principal author uh, at metahistory.org, an absolutely amazing man who I am so, so uh, pleased to have uh, met over the last weekend and had the opportunity to actually spend time uh, and uh, talk and get to know him a little bit. Fascinating man with uh, really important things to say, uh, of course, in my opinion. But here it is, uh, John Lash, and we'll continue uh, with one more after this with uh, the interviews from Bioneers on the Bay. Bioneers by the Bay, I should say. Uh, last weekend, University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. Good afternoon. This is Mike Hagan. We're back at you here from the Bioneers by the Bay Conference at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And I'm joined, as usual, by my good friend Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Hi, Joanna. Hi, sweetheart. I'm enjoying this a lot. I am, too. And uh, this is going to be enjoyable as well. Uh, right now in, in our little makeshift studio here, we have uh, John Lash. And John recently uh, presented... Uh, just a little while ago here at the conference, but we've got a chance to talk with him here for a couple minutes. And uh, John is the co-founder and principal author uh, of the website metahistory.org, uh, metahistory.org. Uh, he's done extensive research on alchemy, Gnosticism, uh, astronomy, um, many, many different topics that John is very familiar with, and we're really pleased to have a chance to talk with him here. So uh, we'll let him sort of do his own introduction, but John, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, uh, Mike. It's great to be here, and uh, there's a really, uh, I've noticed in this event that uh, the subject being Gaia draws uh, a certain depth. It draws on a certain depth in people, and uh, happy to say that uh, the the audience is, is really grounded and deeply, uh, you know, deeply able to listen, and uh, that's what it takes to uh, 
pay attention to uh, the planet and uh, bring our minds together uh, in the presence of the goddess. So I'm very grateful to be participating. John, I would like to ask you a question about... um, Let me see how I can phrase this. Do you think that Gaia, the living planet, has a personal connection with us? And uh, I'm going to be very clear by what I mean by that. There are a lot of uh, people who um, claim to hear the voice of God, who claim, well, particularly a very important uh, book for the uh, for the masses that was called Conversations with God. So I'd like you to elaborate on what you think and feel would be the conversation, or if there is a conversation that Gaia, the living planet, has with us on an individual basis. Uh, that question is uh, the one that that anyone will uh, will embrace who's. Uh, trying now to come into a a deeper communion with Gaia. And I think that it's very important to uh, understand that there there are guidelines for the process of communicating with Gaia, as I would understand it. Certainly, uh, in the mysteries there were guidelines. There were uh, highly disciplined shamans and shamanesses, men and women. And uh, the practice of gnosis, which was ecstatic cognition of nature, knowing through ecstasy, is not something that you do in a slipshod or a reckless fashion. Uh, it takes a tremendous poise and elegance. It takes a, it takes a certain bodily uh, state of, of uh, purity, you could say, in the sense of, of not having too much toxins in your system, to talk about a very practical uh, fact. But it takes a... You, you, we must come to the conversation with Gaia with a certain poise and elegance and a humility. So there are prerequisites and there are guidelines. Uh, I think also, uh, it's such a vast question, but I think also that uh, the really essential thing to address is that the conversation with Gaia, which will lead us to understand what our personal connection is, if indeed we have one, okay? I'm leaving that completely open. You've got to find out if you have one. And there's a process that leads to that. And... uh, one of the essential things about setting up and framing that process is that it will not happen in the same way as the classical conversations with God and God is talking to me and the, and and that kind of experience. It will be different from that kind of experience from the very first moment. Uh, the communication with Gaia is not just like switching off the old channel where people believe they communicated with God or they heard the voice of God talking to them and now instead of talking to Jesus over their breakfast cereal they're talking to Gaia that is not going to work that is going to be more of uh, what the alchemists called the fantastic imagination and not the true imagination Uh, so we must reach toward Gaia with the true imagination and the essential feature in the practice, the essential factor in the practice is uh, a little technical uh, point that the Gnostics understood very, very well. And you can find them referring to it in the Nag Hammadi texts. I call it silent knowing. They have various names for it. In fact, there's a wonderful text, which many people may know from Nag Hammadi, which is called Thunder Perfect Mind. And it is a channeling, in a sense, 
of Gaia. It is an example of someone who wrote down a conversation that they had to Gaia, or more actually, Gaia dictated this to them. And that is a very precious record, and as far as I know, it's, it's the only record of its kind that is an actual uh, report, as it were, from an initiate in the mystery schools of what they heard in silent knowing of Gaia. And that is called Thunder Perfect Mind. And why is it perfect mind? Because it's silent mind. Silent mind is perfect mind. You have to go to the no mind to get to Gaia mind. You know? And that makes it very different from the kind of set up conversations that people have. Uh, how would I compare that to conversations with God, for instance, which very many people... It appears to me, this is just my personal opinion, but it appears to someone who has had these other kinds of conversations, conversation with God appears to be vaudeville. It's like a, it's like a, a, a set-up stage act of, you know, the questions and answers are, are, are all prepared. And talking with Gaia is nothing like that. You have no idea what she's going to say or what you're going to say, what is going to come out of your mind when you're in the place of silent knowing. Now you can get to the place of silent knowing by various practices. Uh, if you meditate, for instance, you may be able to get there through various Buddhist practices, or Dzogchen would probably be the best shot. But you can also get there by allowing uh, an interspecies connection and allowing another species to come and take away your mind and take away the static and the distraction so that you're in silent knowing. So it is through going into silent knowing and becoming uh, adept, somewhat adept at it that you open up the channel of communication and then we will learn does she take any interest in us personally? Does she take any interest in the human species at all? Does she give a wit? You know, if we come or go. We're very new, new arrivals, some people say. And uh, that's how we find out is by going directly to her mind. All right, thanks very much, John. Uh, let me ask you a question about meta-history. We mentioned the name of that site when we began to speak here. And for the people out there in cyberspace, maybe you could tell a little bit about what the project is at meta-history and how that ties into what we're talking about right now and uh, get some, uh, some visits over there at the site because there's a tremendous amount of in-depth information about these exact things there. Yes, meta-history is, is just a word that means, of course, beyond history. And uh, the point of the site is uh, the, the premise of the site, I should say, is that uh, we who are doing it have come to understand that we cannot really know our own story because of the story we've been told about ourselves. And the story we've been told about ourselves is called history. It comes in various versions. And that story conditions us to the way we can receive it. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you don't happen to like that story or where it's taking us, uh, you may find that you don't want to participate in how, it's, how that self-fulfilling prophecy is working out. So we at MetaHistory are trying to present an optional way. We're trying to say we can get beyond the conditioning of our story and we can, through our own faculties, through our imagination, through language, through, through science, through our quest for knowledge, we can move into a different story and it, and even more than that a different involvement with our story more responsibility for creating it and more responsibility 
for the outcome of it. It is a participation process in terms of the narrative of the human species and in terms of our social and cultural narratives. You know? And it's also a critique of belief systems. So that's, that's metahistory in a nutshell. Fantastic. Uh, well, Joanna, would you have another question for John? We've got a few more minutes with him, maybe. Well, to move away from, um, from the subject of, uh, of Gaia for a moment, or to be involved with it, could you define generosity for me? I mean, there are two things that I'd like to hear about. One is generosity, and the other one is tenderness. Well, those uh, two issues are actually very closely related to to what we're talking about. Uh, I think uh, if we need an example of generosity, uh, just look at the earth itself. I would say that the earth is, is pretty generous. And uh, that is how we can learn to be generous. And one of the aspects of generosity that I've considered to be very important is what it's not. We are told and taught in the usual story of history and in the Judeo-Christian-Islamic element of that, that there is a creator God who rewards and punishes and that ain't generosity. So if that God really exists, I don't know, but if that God really exists, it is not a generous being because a generous being does not reward and punish. There is no reward. Generosity has nothing to do with reward. It has to do with the fact that we all have surplus. We all have what we need to live and we all have more. And to give of our surplus is the natural way of life. That is generosity. And tenderness is just a name for technique. How you handle your power. I have one more question, Mike. I do live the questions. Um, well, now that the room has emptied, and potentially um, millions of people could listen to this podcast, I want to ask you. Uh, about the the involvement, well, there are medicines, some people call them entheogens, and they are born out of the earth, um, the crust, the beautiful crust, crunchy crust we live on. Now, what, could you speak about the connection between these medicines, maybe the sort of triangle between us humans, those medicines, and Gaia. Certainly, it, it is a triangle. and That may be the divine trinity as far as we're concerned. You know, us, plants, and Gaia, the sacred plants. Of course, all plants are sacred in, in a sense, and all of them belong to the sacredness of life. But there appear to be about 200 species that she created that have psychomimetic properties and which imitate our own psychic and mental abilities and I don't think that she created them by accident or they just happen to randomly have appeared because the indigenous wisdom all around the world knows about these plants has known about them for thousands of years and recognizes that they are intermediaries between us and Gaia one of the great lessons of the mysteries is that you have to have the humility to 
learn what it means to be a human being from a non-human being. And these plants are our teachers. They are the non-human beings who have been provided for us because, uh, as I said in my talk, we are the singularity in Gaia's dreaming. That's something that we need to explore. And because of our unique potential, we have the greatest potential for deviance. So she compensated for that by providing us with these allies. Well, powerful, powerful stuff. Uh, and I think that's a good place to finish this talk uh, for now. Wonderful stuff. John Lash, again, the principal uh, author and co-founder of MetaHistory.org. You can find them on the web, as always. And uh, this is Mike Hagan with Joanna Harcourt-Smith, and we'll be back at you in just a little while. We've got more and more people to talk to again for the rest of the day today. We'll be doing this again all day tomorrow. And we encourage everybody out there to listen up, download, send emails, share this information with other people, and uh, move these messages forward, okay? All right, uh, one more time, uh, Bioneers by the Bay at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And uh, Mike Hagan and Joanna Harcourt-Smith and John Lash signing off for just a little while. Thanks, John. Thank you, Mike. Well, hello. All right, so uh, there you have it, John Lash uh, from last Saturday. And a fascinating guy, as I said before. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And I've got one more interview that I want to play for you. It was it was uh, with Lisa Harrow and um, uh, and Roger Payne, a couple uh, who closed the conference out with a uh, an artistic presentation, a performance piece that was called "Lessons from Copernicus." And it was a fantastic presentation, and Lisa is a, uh, an, a, a, a highly accomplished and acclaimed Shakespearean actress from New Zealand with an amazing voice, as you'll hear in a moment. And uh, her husband, Roger Payne, is a legendary uh, marine biologist uh, credited with uh, at least one of the first uh, official recognitions of uh, communication in Wales and the fact that they were singing songs and using song to communicate and uh, he has a, uh, a wonderful uh, background in, in uh, whale understanding and uh, sort of a, an intermediary speaking of intermediaries but uh, uh, an interme- intermediary between our species and, and theirs and so anyway Roger Payne and Lisa Harrow did this wonderful presentation uh, uh, that was called Lessons from Copernicus, and she spoke with color about her experiences on the ocean, and then uh, Roger would speak scientifically about those same experiences, and it was wonderful. They went back and forth, and uh, it was a stunning piece. And anyway, we interviewed them afterwards, and uh, this is what it sounded like. Well, hello, all you podcasters out there, you podcast fans. Uh, We come to you, Joanna Harcourt-Smith and Mike Hagan, for the last podcast of this uh, broadcast of the conference, Bioneers by the Bay. And I have to say that I am extremely moved. I just came from a presentation performance um, actually 
a an extraordinary narration of feeling and science braided together like the DNA code by Lisa Harrow and Roger Payne. Roger Payne is a scientist best known for his discovery with Scott McVeigh that humpback whales sing songs. And Lisa Harrow started her career with the Royal Shakespeare Company playing Olivia in Twelfth Night opposite Judy Dent and has, many, has had many roles in film, theater, and television. Um, I will uh, give the microphone uh, first to uh, Lisa and just ask you, Lisa, if you could uh, say a few words that might re-evoke the poignancy of the, uh, the performance you just gave us, the témoignage you both gave us. Thanks, Joanna. Um, what we've just done, Roger and I, is, um, is, is something called uh, Lessons from Copernicus. And uh, it's a program that Roger and I have put together. Uh, Roger does the science and I do the poetry. And basically it's, a, it's an attempt to try and open up both sides of the, the brain, the both sides of the brain and the listener to both the, the hard facts and the poetic interpretation of those facts about the present state that the earth is in and that we human species the human species find ourselves in on the earth and um, so we've, we've we brought together whale song as well and uh, because that's Roger's speciality and so we w- what we do is just um, oh he wants me to say you want me to say a poem oh this is it this is, this is the poem that actually presents you the choice and it's a poem called The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost And it goes like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by. And that has made all the difference and the reason we picked that poem is because that's the choice that faces humanity the choice of the road of business as usual or the road where we start to consider the true cost of what it is that we're doing to the earth and perhaps the better alternative to live in a sustainable way and for that I'm going to put the scientist on and here he is Roger Payne my husband by the way Thanks so much. I think the important, one of the important messages that all of us need to somehow take in, as Lisa says, I guess the most important is the need to act and to start acting soon. But the other message is to realize that 
there's so many things that you can do. There are so many steps that can be taken. There's so many steps that are be ta- are being taken. And instead of costing the world and wrecking the economy and all the other dire predictions which people are making, it turns out that <laughs> they actually help the economy and help things and make things work better. And in fact, benefit those who have the wits to put them into effect very greatly. Some of them unbelievably gratefully. I'll just give you one example. There's an outfit called Interface that makes carpets. And they decided that they would recycle carpets. So they never sell the carpet. They just rent them to you. And when the carpet is done with, you've worn it out and spilled things on it, and the dog has done his part. Then you return the carpet to them, and they break it down into what they refer to as its precious synthetic fibers, and they rebuild new, new carpets. And these new carpets then get rented to somebody else. And how successful has this been? Well, it has multiplied their business so much that they are now the largest carpet manufacturing company in the world. Not bad for this sort of idea. You should. It's very important to actually put in the missing link of the story, and that is it's very important to keep stuff out of landfill because waste is one of the huge problems in our society. And so if you can manufacture an object put it into the, into the economy, and then instead of taking it and throwing it away when it's finished with, when it's had its, used its life, it, is, it can be taken back to the manufacturer and remanufactured into a new piece of whatever it was it was. For instance, there's a lot of car manufacturers in, in Europe now who are doing this with cars and fridges and cooking pots and anything else that you can think of so that rather than continually wasting the resources of the world and continually filling up landfills to the point where we can no longer have landfill, things are being taken out of it and reused and that's a very important new industrial technique called the closed loop system. I have a question for you Roger. I was uh, fortunate, incredibly fortunate uh, a few years ago, four or five years ago, to be down in in Santo Domingo and spent a week out at sea uh, where the mother whales and their babies uh, are, I can't remember the time of the year, but many, 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 many whales, yes. And uh, we would go out in a dinghy and we'd spend seven or eight hours out there and uh, jump off the, ding- the dinghy and, and swim together with the whales and, and play. And as you were describing in your performance, sometimes in the, we were in this tiny dinghy and there were five whales jumping around in the most playful way. Now, in the book, I can't, I can't remember, thank you. The whale charges the boat and destroys the boat. Actually, the real account, not Moby, just Moby Dick, there was a real account of the and they describe it like the whale came at the boat in a very angry way and and just wanted to destroy the boat and everything. Tell me, what is the true story about the whales being so playful with us in the dinghy and the whales charging the boats? Well, the secret was that you weren't trying to kill the whale. And the whale that charged the boat was had a bunch of friends, two of whom had harpoons in them. And the whale came at the boat and did a real job on it, and the result was the boat sank. This is the famous account. The Essex was the name of the boat. And uh, several, they, they launched the whale boats as lifeboats, and a couple of them actually survived what was up until 
Shackleton's efforts in the Antarctic, the most extraordinary open vote voyages ever made by anybody, and they resorted eventually to cannibalism, and it has an appalling story when you read it. But they were trying to kill the whales. I mean, the best example of this I can possibly think of is gray whales. Gray whales were discovered by Scammon in what was became known as Scammon's Lagoon. There are a bunch of lagoons down along the coast of Baja California. And one of these lagoons has a uh, group of famous whales in it because they are known as the friendly gray whales. When Scammon's men discovered them, the, they started harpooning the whales. The whales no more than half liked it. And the result was that they broke boats and killed a lot of men. And they became known amongst the whalers as the devilfish. The gray whales, that's the species that was involved, became devil, the devilfish. I have personally been in a boat with a lot of other people who were just as much tourists as I was, and where we were patting a devilfish whale. And eventually, after waiting about 20 minutes, it, when, when we kept patting it and patting it, it began opening its mouth very slowly. And then you would reach inside its mouth and you would massage its tongue. Whales love to have their tongues touched. And if you watch the next time you're in one of these shows and you watch a killer whale or orca being doing its tricks, if you look carefully, you'll see sometimes it gets a fish, but sometimes it gets a pat on the tongue. They really like that. And it turns out that, well, gray whales, although only distantly related to orcas, are in fact, they like that too. And eventually, I and two other people had our arms completely up to the shoulder down inside the mouth of this gray whale, the devilfish. Don't forget, the really dangerous animal. The devilfish, we had our arms down the shoulder stroking it. The wind was blowing very hard, and it was blowing us because we were in the wind away from the devilfish. The result was that when we would lose touch with it and be blown away, it was no longer getting stroked. At that point, it would open its eye look around, you could see the eye looking around, spot us, and then go through a whole series of crazy gyrations to maneuver itself over next to the boat. People were always reaching out as far as they could because they were dying to touch it. The first one that touched it, it would close its eye, and its eye would remain closed during the whole time we were alongside it, stroking it, patting it, touching it, putting our arms down in its mouth, stroking its tongue. And only when the last person was touching it would it then open its eye and come to us. This went on for 45 minutes. And you don't have to believe it. It was photographed. As a friend of mine said, we have the gospel according to St. Eastman to prove all of this. <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, you know, that's what happens when you can resist the temptation of killing the whale. And, uh, you, you know, there is no problem <laughs> under those circumstances. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very much, you guys. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, in your presentation, at one point, the word courage came up. And because of your voice, Lisa, I was reminded of a, a line from Macbeth that says, you must screw your courage to the sticking place. And you've written a book, uh, What Can I Do? And a lot of the recommendations in that book require courage. And I thought maybe both of you could speak to that a little bit, what true courage is and how uh, we might address those sort of issues. Wow, let me think now. Um, true courage, I think, is just having the, making, first of all, making the decision that you want to do something, then persevering with it. Um, I mean, I, I, and I would take the book as an example, because I, 
I, um, you know, I've, I've lived a number of years and I'm, I'm quite an aware person, but I wasn't really very aware of what was actually happening to the world. And then when Roger started working on the show, I started researching for him for information. And then the second time we did it, at, at Cornell, people kept saying, well, okay, so the, what, what can I do? And I thought, well, as a, as, a, as a performer, I have a responsibility to my audience to actually give them the answer to that question. You can't just do a program and say, guys, everything is going to hell in a hack, and it's your problem. So I wrote this little book, and then it's turned into this other book, and what can I do? And what it is, is just a tool. And, so, and I've written two more, one for Australia and one for New Zealand, both separate sets of websites, both bigger books. Um, but the thing was, I, I discovered that it's not a question of needing to have the courage to do and go and, like heroes and great dramas, to go and completely overcome the hugest dragon out there. It's the courage to go step by step. It's the courage, first of all, to take the road not taken. It's the courage to decide, actually, no, I am not going to have a fast food meal. I'm actually going to find out what is in the food I'm eating and what it's doing to me. I'm going to actually find out whether this fish I'm eating is a sustainably caught fish or is a fish that's actually about to, coming from a fishery that's crashing. I'm going to find out what I can do when I'm getting married and all the food is left over and that, that I can do to stop it going into the trash, but actually, are there any people who are starving in my town? Is there anyone living there who needs the food? Is there any ch child's, child, an old person's home or school or something that the food that's going to be binned can actually go to and not be wasted? Um, is there any way in which I can start encouraging my town to compost rather than... I was in a town in France. We were a couple of summers ago in just a little town, and every single piece of food waste in this town was composted and put back into the soil. What does that mean? That means that the soil is regenerated. What does that mean? That means that the earth is healed. That means there's more good material in which to grow our food, which can only make us healthier. So I think that the courage re re requires us to actually begin to think outside the box, to quote a phrase, um, into the consequences of, of our actions and just take it step by step. So if, you got, if, if they got my book, What Can I Do?, then I would go through the book as just a series of alphabetical headings and choose something that takes your fancy, something that you're interested in, some, uh, uh, just a heading of any one of the, the things that are in there and just explore that subject because in doing that, you will literally follow the path to the next and the next and the next and it will suddenly seem like breathing to you. And then one day you'll wake up and you'll realize, oh my God, I'm actually living restoratively and it'll just creep up and it won't be something that that um, happens overnight but it is certainly something that when it does happen I guarantee you that you know the people will be happier I just want to add I think that that uh, courage is a willingness to look foolish and follow through on it <laughs> and uh, Lisa has far more courage than I would ever be able to have uh, and as a result accomplishes huge amounts and I think it's anybody can do it but you have to be willing to look like a fool at times or to take a risk which would make you look like a fool Lisa never looks like a fool but she may think she would look like a fool <laughs>
like not knowing that Moby Dick is called Moby Dick, <laughs> but wanting to know your feelings about whales, yeah. Yes, well, I'll let Lisa talk about her website, which uh, is called What Can I Do USA dot org, all one word, except the dot org. Um, and we have a website. I run something called the Ocean Alliance, and PBS has picked up our website. It's called PBS dot org forward slash Odyssey, like the Iliad and the <laughs> Odyssey. Odyssey is the name of the boat that we have that's just going around the world. World that has that's won prizes and. It's a good website. But I'd, I'd like to make one last thing. This is my first experience with podcasting. You know, I don't know what a podcast are type of thing. And um, I find it a fascinating experience. And it occurs to me that it is the antidote to the fact that when you think about it, honestly, you realize that all of the news that you get is of absolutely no importance whatever. If you look, if you look at it in the sense of the next 500 years of of humanity, if there is a 500 years for humanity left, it, I mean, it doesn't matter who the red states are and who the blue states are, or who gets elected to be the next president, or even whether in 500 years the United States even exists, or if it doesn't, who can even remember what it was? What matters is what we do every day, anywhere, no matter how small for the environment. Ah, that really matters. That matters to people 500 years from now. And whatever else we do and all the other steps that we take and with which we fill the news is trivial and of no importance. And I think people are starting to recognize that. I see that because of the fact that they go after their news in interesting ways on the internet or now in this podcasting technique. So it's a treat to have done it first here. I um, I just would like to say that People seem to group people into different categories, and there is this thing called greenies or environmentalists, and they're the other people over there, nothing to do with me. Well, the thing is, we are life. We live on this earth, and this earth is the only thing we can live on, and everything that's alive, which holds life, is connected to us, and we are connected to everything that's alive on this earth. And it's not a question of, you know, it's those environmentalists, if you live on this earth, if you are part of life on earth, you have to perforce be concerned about the environment because that's your home. It's who you are. Everything you do has an effect. When you throw something away, there is no way to throw it. You are throwing it into your home. And it's going to come back and affect you sooner or later. If not you, then your children or their children or their children. But your children and their children and their children are also you. The same way you are every single generation right back to as far as life goes on earth. It's all part of you. And so I think we need to start thinking about, not about, oh, the environment. We have to think about it as home and as a way of keeping our home and us healthy. Wonderful. Uh, do you have time for one more question? One of the things that seemed to be prominent in your presentation as well was this idea that the human species has, has sort of a misconception that it is the preeminent uh, species and somehow disconnected from the rest of nature and somehow uh, above and beyond that. Uh, and this question is directed towards you, Roger. Uh, the, the dolphins and the whales, uh, some of what we know now about the brains of these creatures, uh, may throw some different light on that particular topic and it may 
brings some humility to the to the conversation. I thought maybe you could just take a moment to address that. Yeah, um, whales, the, the usual uh, piece of evidence that suggests that whales are doing something very fancy with their brains, which I'm sure they are, is the fact that they have, or seem to have, in the case of some porpoises, and yes, porpoises are whales, they have a seventh layer of associative cells in their cortex. We have but six. And so it looks as though they have more computing power, and therefore they ought to be able to do stuff we can't do. The trouble is that I don't think it would be much of a compliment to a whale to suggest that it uses its brain for the same thing we use it for, our brains for. I mean, we have threatened our own existence in fewer generations, I believe, than any other species that has ever lived in the history of life on Earth. And we may last such a short time that you won't even be able to find us in the fossil record. I mean, that's a real possibility, I think. Um, I mean, you compare our success, our appearance on Earth. Let, let me give you a neat example. I thought of it. Lisa and I were on a wonderful trip to Turkey a while back in which there were several people who knew all about Turkish archaeology, and somebody would pick up a rock and say, did you say this was from 500 B.C. or 500 A.D.? And I remember as a biologist thinking this was just funny. I mean, who the hell cares? I mean, there's no difference, really. And uh, so I gave a talk in which I figured out that the last 2,500 years, which is what this whole trip was covering, in which, by the way, all the major religions were founded, this last 2,500 years, if you took a book of the history of life on Earth and you put 2,500 years on each page, and there are 300 pages to an inch in a book on average, the question would be, you know, how thick would this book be if it covered all of the history of life on Earth? And the answer is 500 feet thick and thick, not <laughs> square feet or something, 500 feet thick. And so that last page is us. There we are. And here we are flailing our arms and offering advice to everything in the universe and, and little realizing that we are, you know, we are simply being manipulated by our genes. We always have been. We're making the same mistake that every species makes, which is we got successful by being selfish. We killed off all of our competitors and other species until you got the meanest, nastiest dude on the block, namely Homo sapiens, and now he's standing on a pile of corpses, you know, looking, beaming at the world for his success, for genocide. Genocide got us here. That's how we made it. Now, the trouble is that we also became extremely successful in growing bigger numbers of ourselves. And now we are facing another thing that happens to species that are super successful, successful measured in numbers, nothing else. And that is you become a plague species eventually. And are we a plague species? Well, find me some aspect of that definition that we don't fit. I mean, I believe, of course, we are a plague species. We've got to learn this. We've got to get rid of our arrogance. We have to stop believing that we're the star of the show and realize we're, you know, just one species among millions more, just another pretty face, as I always say. And so I think it's really important for people to start humility and start it fast, because if they don't, if, you know, then this big brain of ours, the origin of your question, will have been proven to be a huge mistake, maybe one of the biggest mistakes that ever came down the line. I believe, frankly, that dolphins are using their brains not at all for the same things that we are. I have no clue as to what it is. I can only make guesses. My guess is that they're using it for a hugely sophisticated acoustic um, monitoring of the ocean so that they actually can see images, so to speak, with sound. Uh, if we snap up, I snap my fingers in this room, 
uh, any of you out there who only heard that sound would be able to say all about the characteristics of this room, its general dimensions, its height of ceiling, its number of walls, its amount of furniture in the room, and so on. If you are a dolphin, if you're not a dolphin, you're just us. All you hear is that. It doesn't mean much. So I think that's what they're probably doing. But do I have any evidence? No. And all of it is just sheer guesswork on my part. Thank you so much, both of you. Love talking with you. And absolutely wonderful that you would uh, close our program. Yes, I, I have to echo Joanna's thoughts. Just stunning your presentation. I loved it. And, and I hope that other, many, many other people have the opportunity to, to see it and to hear it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. And uh, Joanna, thank you. Oh, this was a fabulous three days. And uh, just get your your earphones on. Get your your iPods out. Four megabytes, sixty megabytes. Download the whole thing. Pass it on to your friends. And. Uh, Maybe there's a speck of humility in all this. You know what? I don't know. All right. I think that's one of the dominant themes. There's a lot that we don't know, uh, and we need to recognize that. So, everybody, this is Mike Hagan uh, signing off from the Bioneers by the Bay conference with Joanna Harcourt-Smith. We've been very fortunate to be here this whole weekend, and uh, we thank everybody who has participated. We thank the Marion Institute for making this all possible. Uh, you can find out information, of course, about the Marion Institute at marioninstitute.org and uh, metahistory.org. All right. Uh, thanks one more time. Hope you all enjoyed it. All right. This is Mike, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. Just finishing things up here. Hope you enjoyed some of the highlights uh, from the Bioneers by the Bay conference uh, that I participated in just last weekend. And there's a bunch more where that came from. If you're interested, you can go on the web to metahistory.org or to connectingforchange.org or radioorbit.com, and you can link up uh, to those uh, webcasts and download or listen to them at your leisure. All right, so uh, Curtis uh, just rolled in here, and the boogeyman will be taking the reins here in just a minute. We'll put a little music on here in a second uh, reminds you to join us next week Kent Stedman will be joining me for a fun and exciting Halloween program and I always uh, have a blast talking with Kent on nights like that so that's coming up uh, always uh, check us out on the web at radioorbit.com and also uh, I'd like your input on mikehagan.com let me know what you think of the new website and in the meantime enjoy yourselves I'll talk to you in a week Stick around for Curtis, and we'll talk to you next time. This is uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from the Liar Gorpheus. This is Spell. Through the woods and frosted moon. As the snow-caked petrol tide Led down upon the drifting snow Sleep beneath the melting sky I whisper all your names I know not where you are But somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in 
Turns to streams of light. 